Welcome to the latest episode of British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, the podcast for people who understand that history shows us what's possible for us in our lives today. I'm Carol Ann Lloyd, your host and tour guide as we travel back in time. We're shaking up history to look at the stories that don't always make the history books, to consider famous and infamous characters in new and interesting ways, and to look for all the things that we share even when we're living in different times and places. I hope you enjoy this journey through the royals, rebels, and romantics of Britain. Now, let's explore history together. Last week, we saw that the Tudors celebrated Christmas for 12 days or more and made it a central time of the year. For many, it was the only extended holiday from work, the only time to visit family and friends, and the only time to indulge in meat or other treats that were unaffordable during the year. For nobility, it was a time to open their manners and invite in townspeople so they could share in some of the fine food and drink. And it was a time work was not allowed. In fact, it was tradition to decorate not only the house and hearth, but also the spinning wheel so it couldn't be used a symbol of not working over the 12 days of Christmas. By the time we get to Victoria's reign, things had changed. In fact, in 1837, the first year of her reign, Christmas was barely celebrated at all. Some businesses even remained open. If people did exchange gifts, they did it on New Year's Day, as the Tudors had. But unlike the Tudors, December 25th did not kick off a time of feasting and celebration. It didn't kick off singing and dancing and partying. It didn't kick off much of anything at all. What happened? Well, just two kings after Elizabeth I, Parliament took over. James I, Elizabeth's successor, was very unpopular by the end of his reign, and his son, Charles I, was even worse. It was so bad, in fact, that for the first and only time in history, Parliament went to war against the monarchy and ultimately executed the King of England. The very strictly religious members of Parliament had been fighting against what they saw as excessive Christmas celebrations even before the King's execution. In 1644, an act of Parliament banned extreme Christmas celebrations, declaring that the feasting and merrymaking had nothing to do with religious celebration. As the war went on, few people could have really done anything for Christmas anyway. In 1647, Parliament passed an ordinance that officially abolished Christmas Day as a holiday. Charles I was beheaded two years later. With the king dead, the extremists in Parliament had even more power. They passed laws to enforce their campaign to make December 25th a day of sober religious reflection. Many of these Puritans had associated Christmas celebrations with Catholicism, and they had been working for years to curtail or eliminate them. Now they had the power to do so. However, these laws were very unpopular and enforced only sporadically. Many people simply moved Christmas celebrations into their homes or private spaces. Still, the laws did result in keeping businesses open that day and eliminating the large celebrations people had previously enjoyed. After the death of Oliver Cromwell, Parliament decided that having a king might not be such a bad idea after all. The son of Charles I also named Charles, of course, was invited to return from France and become Charles II. Parliament declared him king in May 1660 and invited him to return. 
Charles agreed. He was crowned the 23rd of April, 1661, after new coronation regalia had been created to replace what the Puritans had melted down. Not only were Christmas celebrations restored, but theaters were reopened and women were allowed to act on the stage. Charles II was nicknamed the Merry Monarch. But the focus was still primarily New Year's Day and Twelfth Night. After the Stuarts came the Georgians. During the 18th century, Twelfth Night parties became popular. People played games, drank, ate, and had Twelfth Cake. This was the centerpiece of the party. It was traditionally baked with a dried bean and a dried pea hidden within, then sliced and shared with everyone at the party. Whoever found the bean was the king of the night, and whoever found the pea was the queen. The cake became a centerpiece of the celebrations, and as the 19th century dawned, it was elaborately decorated. As time went on, the bean and pea for king and queen faded away, but the special cake remained. So when Victoria came to the throne in 1837, the primary celebrations were New Year's Day, when people exchanged gifts, and Twelfth Night, when people had large parties. Christmas Day itself was barely celebrated at all. Most people went to work that day. But with Victoria as queen and Prince Albert as consort, all of that was about to change. A few different things happened to transform Christmas from a quiet, somewhat overlooked day into the central holiday of the year. One was the royal family. Victoria and Albert were determined to restore the monarchy to its prestigious role in people's minds, even as its actual political power diminished. And social and economic changes throughout the 19th century, including the Industrial Revolution and the ability to create items quickly and expensively, such as cards, toys, ornaments, supported the change to the way Christmas was celebrated. So let's take a look at some of the very Victorian elements of Christmas, some of which we still enjoy today. Christmas trees. One of the central elements of current Christmas celebrations is the Christmas tree. From that towering tree in Rockefeller Center to trees in homes and businesses, it just isn't December without the tree. So how did the Christmas tree become a central image of the Victorian Christmas? Prince Albert grew up in Germany, which is associated with the first Christmas trees. According to tradition, Germans were the first people to bring trees into their homes and decorate them for Christmas. The legend is that Martin Luther looked up through the branches of an evergreen and saw the stars shining in the sky. It looked like the stars were in the tree. This inspired the idea of adding lighted candles to the tree branches. Queen Victoria was not the very first royal to have a decorated Christmas tree. All the Georgians were from Germany and steeped in that tradition as well. Queen Charlotte had a decorated tree for her family in the 1790s, and there is a record of a tree at Queen Caroline's court in 1821. So Prince Albert didn't really start the tradition of Christmas trees in the British home, but he definitely made it popular. In fact, Victoria and Albert both had such enthusiasm for Christmas and the Christmas tree that it became one of the most important parts of their family's year, and they wanted to share that with the public. In 1841, Albert brought in and decorated a large Christmas tree at Windsor Castle. Describing the event to his father, Albert recalled how he had loved Christmas as a child and how pleased he was to have his, quote, 
German Christmas tree and its radiant candles, end quote, to share with his own children. Queen Victoria described the tree as a dream. Initially, most Christmas trees were displayed in pots. They were decorated with small candles and sometimes little gifts. German trees were imported into England until the 1880s when Norway spruce trees were grown locally. They became more affordable, allowing more people to have a tree for Christmas. In addition, larger trees that could stand on the floor became popular. The growth of factories and the ability to create and transport goods meant that toys and other gifts became readily available and more affordable. At this point, rather than putting small gifts on the tree, people began to place larger gifts under and around the tree. Christmas family time. During the reigns of King George I, George II, George III, and George IV, including his time as Prince Regent, and William IV, people generally lost respect for the monarchy. George III was popular until his madness, and the Prince Regent was popular among a slice of the elite. But overall, people were coming to view the monarchy with suspicion and even resentment. Victoria was seen as a breath of fresh air when she came to the throne, but she was young and inexperienced and made some early mistakes that threatened her popularity and contributed to a growing sense of Republican sentiment. When Victoria and Albert married in 1840, they consciously set about doing whatever they could to improve the image of the monarchy. Creating a family Christmas with children gathered around the tree was an essential part of that plan. With their Christmas as a tree as a centerpiece, the royal family was ready to create a picture-perfect Christmas. In 1848, the Illustrated London News featured a drawing of the royal family celebrating around a decorated Christmas tree. Eager to share the image of family-centered royals, especially at Christmas, Victoria and Albert were happy to have the image, image published. The popularity of the Christmas tree grew rapidly in Britain after the image appeared. A few years later, in 1860, an image of Queen Victoria, Prince Albert, and their children decorating the tree was featured in Godey's Ladies Book. The growing popularity of the Christmas tree helped make the royal family seem like a benefit to the British people. Even into the 20th century, images of young Victoria and Albert decorating the tree continued to emerge. For example, in the 1910 Life of Queen Victoria for Boys and Girls by Alice Corcoran, you'll find an image of the young queen and prince consort with a couple of their very young children decorating a Christmas tree. The image of the royal family celebrating around a Christmas tree became permanently connected with Victoria's reign. Christmas cards. And what about Christmas cards? With nearly everything being electronic these days, Christmas cards and a couple of random ads are about the only thing in my mailbox. But when did people start sending cards with Christmas greetings? In 1843, British inventor and first director of what's now the Victoria and Albert Museum, Sir Henry Cole, commissioned a special card that he could send out at Christmas time. He had artist John Calcourt Horsley create an image of a family dinner and added a Christmas greeting. The card also featured an image of feeding the hungry. He had a thousand cards printed and sent them out to his friends. He sold the ones he didn't use to other people. In 
The idea caught on, but the first cards were expensive to print, so only the wealthy had them made. They went by penny post to households all over Britain. As cards were popular but expensive, families began encouraging children to make their own. It's said that even Queen Victoria had her children make their cards for family and friends. When the halfpenny postage rate was introduced in 1870, the popularity of sending cards increased even more. Eventually, less expensive dye made the production of cards even more affordable. By 1880, more than one million cards were printed in Britain for Christmas. Interestingly, the cards reveal that what was considered appropriate for Christmas greetings in Victorian times was sometimes a little strange. In fact, some designs were downright unfestive, with dead birds and tormented snowmen. One particularly captivating image was a mouse riding a lobster. Sending Christmas cards is still a popular tradition. Is there perhaps a lobster-riding mouse in your mailbox right now? Think a Victorian, especially Sir Henry Cole. Christmas presents. At the beginning of Victoria era, the time for gift-giving was New Year's Day, as it had been in Tudor times. The gifts for wealthy families were homemade clothing and toys, which were very expensive. Most of Britain had to make do with small gifts, such as fruit, nuts, sweets, and other small items. They were used to decorate the tree, hanging from branches, away from the candles, I hope. As the Christmas tree became central and the holiday of Christmas grew in popularity, the giving and opening of gifts shifted to Christmas Day. As factories produced toys more quickly, they became more affordable. This helped the gift-giving tradition take stronger hold throughout the country and beyond. The size of gifts grew beyond that of fruits and sweets. That's when they began to appear under and around the tree. The notion of families gathered around the tree with their gifts on Christmas Day helped solidify the celebrating of Christmas in the home. For many in Britain, Christmas just isn't Christmas without the crackers. Did you know these are a Victorian invention as well? Confectioner Tom Smith visited Paris in the 1840s and noticed that sugared almonds and other sweets were often sold in twists of paper. The French called these bonbons. Smith came up with the idea of creating all kinds of sweets wrapped in a paper package that snapped apart when the ends were pulled. They were such a hit at Christmas that Smith decided to add a love note and make them more of a year-round item. At this point, they were called kisses, not crackers. They pulled apart, but didn't crack. Legend has it that the idea for a crack came from the crackling sound of a fire. Smith created a way to achieve the pop sound with two strips of paper, one painted with silver fulminate, that created a tiny explosion when they rubbed against each other. This made the items even more of a hit, and they became known as crackers. Smith had his company design extraordinary covers for the boxes and the crackers themselves, which began to be filled with novelty items such as paper hats, jewels, little toys, and puzzles. By 1891, Tom Smith and Company produced 11 million Christmas crackers in a single season. The crackers became more and more specialized. One year, there was a doll sold with several crackers, each of which provided an item of clothing. When all the crackers were pulled, the doll would have a complete outfit.
One of the largest crackers ever produced by Smith's company was eight feet long and nearly 20 inches around. It was brought out at Christmas time, Christmas time on Drury Lane and pulled apart by clowns. Hundreds of smaller crackers tumbled out and were distributed to those in attendance. Needless to say, that went off with a bang. Christmas feasts. After a day of presents and trees and playing, it was time for the Christmas feast. Victorians modified some of the tasty treats that made their way to the Tudor Christmas table. For example, Tudors loved mince pies. We now think of mince pies as being filled with mincemeat, meaning dried fruits and spices. In Tudor times, people didn't separate sweet and savory the way we do. So mince pies, also called mutton pies or shred pies, were filled with minced meat and suet, as well as fruits and spices. Victorians started with the original recipe, as well as the original shape, which looked like cradles to celebrate the birth of Christ. As the period went on, mince pies evolved into something more recognizable to us. Victorians, especially the elite, decided to create mince pies filled with just fruit and spices, similar to the fun treats we enjoy today. Like the Tudors, Victorians favored roasted meat at Christmas. Beef was an early favorite, as was goose. Those who couldn't afford a goose celebrated with rabbit. Early in Victoria's reign, turkey was too expensive for most families to have for Christmas dinner. Even the queen had beef and a roast swan for her meal in 1840. Over time, though, turkey became more affordable and more popular, and it was the perfect size for a middle-class family. By the end of the era, turkey was the part of most Christmas feasts. Victorians knew not all were able to feast on special treats for the holidays. Many Victorians were committed to serving those in poverty. London was a gathering place for all levels of society, for the, from the incredible wealth of the royals to the drastic and life-threatening poverty of the destitute. Temporary kitchens sprung up in major cities to offer food and cheer to the homeless and the poor. For example, in 1851, Leicester Square was decorated with flags and lights. Volunteers set up a temporary kitchen and fed 22,000 people with roast beef, rabbit pies, goose, bread, potatoes, biscuits, and chestnuts. And they went through 5,000 pounds of plum pudding, creating a Christmas vision. It's sometimes said that Charles Dickens invented Christmas, or at least invented Victorian Christmas. Certainly, he made Christmas popular and important. The 1843 publication of A Christmas Carol was an unqualified success. It likely contributed to all the other factors making Christmas a major holiday by the end of the 19th century. Dickens aimed to highlight the destitute lives all over Britain and generate greater efforts to help them. The 1851 Leicester Square efforts may well have been spurred on by Dickens' book. In addition, the publication of A Visit from St. Nicholas by Clement Seymour contributed to the idea of Christmas and especially St. Nicholas. The book was published in 1822, but didn't become well-known until it was republished with a series of engravings by Thomas Nash in the 1860s. Many of us can recite the text from the numerous times we've read the description of the main character. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all covered with ashes and soot. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. Like A Christmas Carol, the popularity of A Visit from St. Nicholas helped shape the perception of Christmas and continues to do so today. 
Likewise, the efforts of Victoria and Albert, supported by economic and technological advances, were essential to the transition of Christmas from a quiet celebration at the beginning of the 19th century to the big, loud, modern celebration we enjoy today. Thank you for joining me for a very Victorian Christmas. Next week, we'll be enjoying a winter wonderland with the Windsors. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share with a friend. Do send any questions or comments. I'd love to hear from you where we should explore next. And please subscribe and leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. I'm so glad we could explore history together. Till next time. Thank you.